Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema 206. My name's Terry Frost, and to start off Femme Fatale February, I'm going to look at a couple of classics with Femme Fatales in it. The first one is the 1944 adaptation of James M. Cain's novel Double Indemnity, starring Fred McMurray, Edward G. Robinson, and Barbara Stanwyck. Then we move forward to Basic Instinct from 1992, starring Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Hey people, how the fuck are you? I'm recording this one a little bit early because when I normally record, I'll be driving up to Sydney to visit family. Sal and I are taking a road trip about 890 kilometres as the Google Maps fly. And uh, so we're going to be leaving early on Saturday morning and getting there mid-Saturday afternoon. So we start out at 3 in the morning. We'll probably get there about noonish because of the, um, the tyranny of distance, I suppose. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, the next Martian drive-in after this one will be a little bit late because I'm driving back that weekend. And I'm not sure um, how innovating that's going to be. But nonetheless, visiting Sydney and visiting the family is something I like doing. And I've got two weeks off, so I might as well enjoy it. Now, I don't have anything that I've been watching, by the way, because it's only a few days since I recorded the last Paleo Cinema. I'm recording this on the Wednesday. I've got Wednesday this week off. And so I haven't had a chance to watch anything except podcast movies. The next thing I'm going to watch is To Kill a Mockingbird because tomorrow I'm recording that for ABC Radio Darwin. Uh, the first one of the year, uh, Rebecca McLaren and I are getting the team back together and we're doing To Kill a Mockingbird because it's appearing on the school curriculum in the Northern Territory so we thought we'd get it in early and uh, talk about it as a cool movie with a lot to say about a lot of things. And then uh, two weeks after that we're doing La La Land which... Um, I enjoyed. I'll be honest with you, I did enjoy watching La La Land. I didn't expect to. I thought it would be like a, a really substandard copy of a musical. But people like Morris from Love That Album podcast and a few other people I've chatted with about it said, yeah, you, it's your kind of thing. It's in your wheelhouse, so go and see La La Land, which I did. And I enjoyed it. I've also got a screener of it now to watch again before we record about it but um yeah i really did enjoy it i got very sad at the end but um yeah it, it really it's an interesting film because it polarizes audience people either love it or hate the fuck out of it and there's a lot of online chatter about why exactly that's the case um i've got my theories about it i've got my theories why it is so popular it's nominated for a whole bunch of oscars but academy awards I really gave up on Academy Awards when they gave one to Lionel Richie for Say You, Say Me. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not that keen on awards. I think that um, the things that don't win the awards are the more interesting ones. So usually what you can do is see what's nominated for a whole bunch of awards, not just the Oscars, but all the ones around the edges, 
and maybe some of those are your go-to films if you want to look at a bit of quality cinema, particularly the foreign language ones. Nonetheless, um, yeah, I, I did enjoy it, and I've got the soundtrack album now. I'm going to be playing it on the trip up to Sydney, partly to annoy Sally, but partly because I like it. And uh, I don't want to talk too much more about it because I've got to save the energy of that for the radio. What I actually do have is some feedback. Uh, I haven't done feedback for a while, and I've grabbed a, a couple of things that uh, that I had as feedback, and they're both very, very good. So I, I really appreciate the two gents who provided it to me. The first one's from our old friend David Cummer in Minnesota. I don't think he's in Minneapolis, but you'll know he's in Minnesota. David will obviously correct me if I'm wrong. But um, his, his update on the Judgment at Nuremberg episode I did a little while back, uh, he says, okay, here's my quick and dirty reaction to Judgment at Nuremberg. While I've seen this before, there was a lot of material I've forgotten. On my first viewing, that opening had a sense of fresh, clean air after the Nazi machine had been brought down. I didn't have that this time, and I'm not sure what gave me the earlier feeling. Watching Judgment at Nuremberg was harder this time and felt very predictive, and Spencer Tracy's value of a single human being was thrilling, but scathing as to what America has become. Actually, America was probably pretty close to this in the past. It's just become more apparent. Thanks for letting me dance on your soapbox. Take care. P.S. I'm a bit worried, panic-stricken about how my history is being of being a loudmouth agitator and participation in demonstrations and my arrest record might come to bite me on the ass. Well, others have done it and so I will. David. David actually was at a protest today, in fact, about uh, the Trump laws. Uh, he's put it all over Facebook, so he's a nice um, left-wing gay gentleman of a certain age who I actually met when I was in uh, Minneapolis many moons ago in 1998. So thank you for that, David. Yeah, uh, Judgment Nuremberg is not an easy watch by any means. It's really um, a part of history that's important. It's a part of history that we need to remember as well. But it's never an easy watch, but it is a quality film. And it has a lot to say, um, unfortunately, about contemporary issues, even though, of course, when they made it, they weren't aware of the fact that in the second decade of the 21st century, we would be fighting a lot of the same ideological battles that uh, were fought in the 30s and 40s. That's the thing about the future. It bites you in the ass every time. Just when you think you know how things are going to go for the next couple of years, even if it's not particularly good, you kind of settle in and you think, okay, it's going to be like that, and then suddenly random shit pops up and it does that biting of the ass. And um, by now I should be used to it, but the random directions of history and the um, insanity of certain people really does surprise me sometimes. We also got some nice feedback from a friend of the show, uh, Court Psyops, over at Geek Chat Army. And if you go to um, Geek Chat Army at uh, Podbean, you can listen to their podcast. There hasn't been an episode since November, but um, I'm sure they're going to pick it up at some stage in the future. Let me just see. Um, Geek Chat Army, Pokemon A Go Go, that episode at Podbean. Let me just click through and I'll get you the exact URL for them. And I've got a 404 error, which is kind of interesting. Uh, anyway, um, Court says, let's see. Terry, two things I want to say. First, the new mic is sounding terrific, sir. Second, I want to thank you for that earnest discussion on overcoming being raised in a homophobic environment and working hard to have inclusion in your life. 
My parents were not the issue for me, but the town I grew up in was toxic in this regard, let alone the culture of my country. Your words resonated with me because of this. Keep up the amazing work, sir. Thank you, Court. Um, I was really nervous about doing that part. It was really strange for me because revealing that much and revealing that I wasn't always enlightened is, is a difficult thing for me in some ways. But um, I'm glad I did now. And when, particularly when I'm covering gay issues and, as well, I'm aware of the fact that I'm talking as somebody who isn't gay. And I kind of want to be fair to everybody concerned and I want to say the things that need to be said. But in a sense, I'm talking as an outsider and that always makes it slightly more difficult. But I think that allies also need to speak up more, but not kind of mansplain gay issues to gay people, which I've seen done a couple of times and it's embarrassed and annoyed the shit out of me. But thanks for that, Court. Um, keep up the good work and, th and thanks for your support as well. I, I appreciate you listening and offering the feedback. And by the way, Court lives in Omaha, Nebraska, which shows that um, the red state mentality isn't everybody in all the red states in America. Uh, and that's um, reassuring. I hear a lot of people here in Australia, particularly with the Trump stuff at the moment, talk about, and I just hit the mic with a towel, um, talk about how Americans are like this and Americans are like that. And I always say some Americans are. Not all and not even most. But some Americans are idiots. It's just like some Australians are idiots, some New Zealanders are idiots, some English are idiots. The majority of people wish well to everybody. And we've really got to remember that, particularly in these times. Now, that then gives me a segue into the theme of this podcast, which is women who don't wish everybody well, femmes fatale. And the femme fatale is an interesting phenomenon. It's, um, they're interesting for a number of reasons, one of which is they're sexually powerful women. They're sexually um, aggressive women in a lot of cases, in, particularly in cinema. And they're a temptation to weak men who inevitably are trapped by them and fucked up by them big time. And that's the interesting thing about uh, film noir and Femmes Fatale in particular. The power is with the woman, and particularly in, in classic cinema. I mean, the first movie I'm going to talk about is Double Indemnity, which is 1944. And the interesting thing about, oh, well, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but the interesting thing there is there is this, a movie in 1944 with a sexually aggressive woman. Even though she makes the man think that he's the sexual aggressor, he isn't. And she's the engine of the plot in a whole bunch of different ways. And that's the nice thing about Femmes Fatale. The gender power in the, in the movie is overthrown. And, yeah, there can be a whole bunch of misogynistic stuff thrown in with that as well. As far as um, the portrayal of uh, female characters who are forthright. But still, nonetheless, um, they're interesting kind of character in a, in a particular kind of film and there's room for variation with them as well not all femme fatales are the same and it'd be silly if they were but anyway i'm going to take a break now and when i get back we're going to look at billy wilder's 1944 film noir double indemnity based on uh, a novel by james m kane and with a script written by not only billy wilder but one of the great middle of the 20th century crime writers Raymond Chandler I killed Dietrichson 
me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make her head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. Double Indemnity's 1944 Paramount Motion Picture. It's a film noir, uh, as I said, directed by Billy Wilder and uh, based on a novella by James M. Kane. And the script was written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, which is very, very cool. But it was a problematic um, writing experience for Raymond Chandler, who actually complained to the studio because... Raymond Chandler was a very sexually repressed man. He married a much older woman who had health issues and he um, wasn't the most out there kind of guy. And while they're working in the office, Billy Wilder would have long, lascivious conversations with his girlfriends and then tell Chandler about his sexual exploits just to piss him off. And eventually um, Raymond Chandler complained at the studio and Billy Wilder apologised and backed off. But nonetheless... um, not exactly the way writing partnerships normally work. Anyway, the plot's fairly simple for Double Indemnity. I always say the plots are simple, but this one kind of basically is that there are some twists and turns in it. Uh, the film stars Fred McMurray as an insurance na- salesman, uh, Walter Neff. Barbara Stanwyck as a provocative housewife who wishes her husband dead. Her name's Phyllis. And Edward Jean Robinson, Edward Jean, Edward Jean, Edward G. Robinson plays Keys. A claims adjuster whose job it is to find phony insurance claims. The term double indemnity refers to a clause in certain life insurance policies that doubles the payout in rare cases when death is caused accidentally. Now, the plot's fairly simple. Neff's a, um, an insurance salesman who goes around to various prospects and sells them insurance policies. He's a bit of a smart-ass, a bit of a ladies' man, a bit of a flirt. And he meets Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. 
who um, wants who asks him about uh, getting a life insurance policy against her husband. And the way she spins it uh, on their second meeting, that first one me- meeting is a pretty prosaic one about car insurance. But um, Neff flirts with her and um, she then approaches him saying, can we get an insurance policy on my husband without him knowing? And so he tells her basically, you know, I understand what you're trying to do and I don't want to be part of it. Nonetheless, her sexual availability sucks him in and uh, they plan to kill Mr. Didrikson, who's never given a first name, played by an actor called Tom Powers, by faking a um, a fall off the back of a train and um, making it look like he fell off the back of a train and died. This gets complicated by a couple of things, one of which is that Mr. Didrikson breaks his leg and is on crutches. And in fact, the first image you see of the movie is a man on crutches in silhouette walking toward the camera as the titles come up. We don't understand until a fair bit into the film who that person is and what the um, crutches represent, but eventually we do. And so we find out as as the story progresses and the murder is, is committed, which isn't a spoiler at all because it's called Double Indemnity and it's about an insurance claim and a murder. But... Um, as Keyes investigates, and Edward G. Robinson's fantastic play, Barton Keyes, the insurance adjuster in this one, he um, he starts wondering a couple of things. It's beautifully plotted, this um, movie, because the way that Keyes investigates and the way he tries to understand what goes on and the motivation behind it does um, show the singular gifts of Raymond Chandler as a writer. In fact, James M. Cain was very impressed with a lot of the ways that things were found out in the movie because they weren't written that way in the original novella that he, that he put out a few years before. And he, he actually um, gave kudos to Billy Wilder and um, Raymond Chandler for the way they handled it. It was Chandler who convinced Wilder that they didn't need to use any of the uh, actual dialogue from the original novella. And the way he did this was kind of interesting. To settle the argument, they actually got some actors together to read the dialogue from James M. Cain's original novella. And Billy Wilder listened to them, and it was a hard one to read. The dialogue looks good on a written page, but doesn't look good when read out aloud. And Wilder actually agreed, eventually, with Chandler that they couldn't really use much of the dialogue, if any at all, from the original novella because it just didn't play well when spoken rather than read. And that's the case with a lot of um, writing of the time, uh, pulp writing in particular. The original novella was very popular. It was a hot property for the studio at the time. But people thought that it was kind of unfilmable because of the nature of the plot line. You've got to remember this is under the production code. And there were so many things that they couldn't do and or even particularly strongly imply about um, human relationships. And there were so many restrictions about murderers and murdering, about adultery and all sorts of other things like that, that really made it a bit of a minefield to write and um, film a, a movie based on this kind of a, a product. The, the thing is that they actually managed it, which is terrific. The movie's um, really great. It plays very well, and the dialogue is sharp, and that dialogue is mostly Raymond Chandler. There's a bit where um, 
Barbara Stanwyck's character, Phyllis, announces that she was sunbathing. And Neff says to her, oh, I hope there were no pigeons out there. And a few other little bits of sharp dialogue that kind of show that he's a, a cocky bastard. And, in fact, there's a great line about Neff that Keyes, uh, played by Edward G. Robinson, gives him later in the movie. He says, you're not smarter, Walter, you're just a little taller. And Walter Neff is one of the template characters for the sucker in a film noir with femme fatale in that he thinks he's smarter than he is. And as you'll see with Basic Instinct and with a number of other ones, including Body Heat and, uh, and other movies like that, the protagonist thinks he's smarter than he is. The protagonist thinks he's got a line on things when he's being used as a patsy. And it's an important quality for um, particularly films noir with femme fatales in them. The guys think that they've got it over on the woman. They've, they've had a sexual conquest. They get complacent and cocky and they get uh, entitled and they get a sense of privilege about it. But ultimately they're being used more than they're using. And Walton, as played by Fred McMurray, is definitely the kind of prototype for that kind of a character. Fred McMurray was known at the time, and, and subsequently as well, as an actor playing kind of nice guys, in a sense. Uh, his long-running TV series, My Three Sons, for instance, he was playing the father of a, of a family with three sons, of course. He um, also did a, a number of Disney movies, which were incredibly bad and uh, for me at least almost unwatchable these days but this one he really kind of stepped out of that um, stereotype and um, showed us the underside of um, likeable folksy um, salesman then we've got Keys who's a kind of sexually ambiguous character as well played by Edward G. Robinson He's, uh, he said he was going to get married at one stage a long time ago, but he investigated his fiance and found out a whole bunch of things he didn't like about her, and they all seemed to be insufficient reasons to um, not go through with a wedding. And um, there's, there's a kind of implication, and it's um, really interesting that Keyes may not be particularly interested in women sexually. In fact, his um, relationship with Walter Neff is very much a bromance. Uh, Keyes is the claims adjuster, Niff's a salesman. Keyes tries to get him as an assistant, even if it meant a, a reduction in pay, because he thinks Walter would make a good um, claim adjuster. He's got that kind of mind that pieces things through and plots things through, which, of course, mean, is, is demonstrated in the movie by the fact that a lot of the detail of the murder and the cover-up and the alibis and all the rest of it that go along with the murder of Mr. Dietrichson were planned and meticulously, by the way, by Walter. A couple of random events, including the um, fact that there's a man on the train as Neff's about to jump off the end of the train and pretend to be uh, Mr. Dietrichson and pretend to break his neck falling off the train. Uh, a, car a character actor called Porter Hall plays a, a guy from Oregon who's um, on the train and starts getting chatty with who he thinks is um, Mr. Dietrichson, but is actually Walter Neff faking it. And uh, so there, there are all these kind of little bits of random coincidence, which aren't really out of proportion and aren't really left field kind of things. They're natural coincidences that ultimately do start messing things around. And then Walter finds out more about Phyllis because of her stepdaughter. 
played by an interesting actress, not particularly because of her acting, but because of her life. The daughter Lola is played by an actress called Jean Heather, who had a brief career in the 1940s. And in 1947, she had a car accident, uh, which included a number of head injuries. And it's kind of obliquely alluded to that that stopped her career as an actor. Now, I don't know whether it was facial disfigurement or some kind of acquired brain injury. There's really no detail that I can find about Jean Heather and the reasons why she stopped acting. But she was kind of good as the ingenue. Uh, another actor called Byron Barr plays her boyfriend, Nino, who her father disapproves of. And Lola um, has a couple of encounters with Walter Neff where she gives her, him sorry, some interesting details about the past history of Felix, Phyllis Diedrichson and the way she may well have assisted the death of Lola's mother, the first Mrs Diedrichson. And so we slowly, and it isn't taken too far, but we slowly get this little implication that Phyllis Diedrichson is um, a killer a, a number of times. And she's playing Walter along, even though Walter thinks that because he plotted the murder and the cover-up and all that kind of thing, he's on top of things. We learn a little bit more, well, in fact, a lot more about Phyllis who she is and um, how she lives her life and how she sees Walter, which makes it a much more interesting film. And that extra layer is something that you wouldn't normally get. Film noir can be a pared down and simplified kind of cinema in some ways. And lazy writing has appeared in film noir at times where people are just bad. There's not a reason why they're bad. I mean, Phyllis Diedrichson... Yeah, it's obviously some kind of sociopath. It's fairly clear that that's the case. But because we're given that little extra history on her, and she actually talks a little bit to Walter toward the end of the movie about who she really is and how she sees the world, she's a much more interesting film noir protagonist than in a lot of films uh, of the 40s and 50s in particular. She's really a one-off now, Barbara Stan was wearing a very bad blonde wig in Double Indemnity. And Billy Wilder was looking at the dailies. Uh, and about three weeks into the filming, kind of realised this. And then realised that they couldn't go back and refilm all of the scenes again. They didn't have the money or the time to do it. So they just put up with this bad wig that Barbara Stanwyck was wearing in the film. And in a kind of fucked up way, it does work. Um, she's hiding who she is in a lot of ways and, and having a bad wig on her kind of is almost a subconscious acknowledgement of that. So it's one of those kind of accidents that for me at least makes to um, the character much more interesting than she would be without the wig. So in a sense, you've got in the movie, you've got this three-sided triangle. You've got Keys, you've got Neff, you've got Dietrichson. And they're all dancing around each other. Um, Keys is very fond of Neff. And Neff actually says twice in the movie, I love you too, to Keys in a kind of slightly sarcastic way, but as an acknowledgement of their close friendship. And it's something that he never says to Phyllis Dietrichson and she never says to him, which makes things um, kind of intriguing. It's a little bit like Gilda where you've got that dynamic between the three characters. And as time goes on, the more I think about it, the implications of a broader sexuality that kind of very subtly 
slip into ca- um, classic films are an acknowledgement of what we now know to be true, that you know, sexuality is a continuum, gender is a continuum. People aren't just one thing or the other. They're not male, they're not female completely, they're not straight, they're not gay completely. But there's a, a wide... There are lots of shades of grey without going into 50 shades of grey. There are lots of shades of grey there. And if you look closely at certain films at certain times in the past when that wasn't even fully known and and couldn't be acknowledged because of the restrictions under which these studios worked. Nonetheless, in the real world, and particularly people like Billy Wilder knew this stuff because Billy Wilder was a journalist in Germany during the 1920s, during the Weimar Republic. And he went to the cabarets, he saw the sex workers, he saw the polymorphous perversity of the 1920s in Germany and uh, the nightclub scene and and you know, he, he kind of grew up and cut his teeth as a writer in an environment of gay, straight, bi, group sex, sadomasochism, um, prostitution, everything possible that, that could go on between human beings was something with which Billy Wilder was very familiar and part of that floods into double indemnity when you look at the relationship between Walter Neff and Barton Keyes. There's um, a closest there that um, remains unspoken in some ways, but is quite interesting and really does flesh things out. Um, The two characters are very fond of each other, even though Walter is definitely a a pussy hound and he um, in particular becomes infatuated to a, a large degree with Phyllis Diedrichson, even though us as an audience know she's a bad egg and, and is not the sort of woman you really should have anything to do with. Um, you know, I've had, I've had a little bit of a, a history with women in the past and there are people who are better matches for you than others and there are times when you wake up in the morning and go, why did I do that? And film noir in a sense and the femme fatale in film noir in a sense is the ultimate manifestation of that why why am i in bed with this person why did i do that why did i allow myself to um go in that particular direction rather than staying well away and i'm not criticizing anybody i've ever slept with before i i don't think it's right i don't think it's gentlemanly i don't think it's you know fair but nonetheless there are times when you know something isn't right for you and you've already done it. And femme fatales in film noir are a big manifestation of that. But anyway, just to wrap up Double Indemnity, it is a classic. Rewatching it, they're all little bits of business and little subtle bits of acting, particularly by Edward G. Robinson and also by Barbara Stanwyck, who, um, who had been kind of working as an actor for 15 years or more in film by the time this one came along. And she does give us a chilling portrayal. If you look into, look at her very closely, it's almost in kind of the stuff that's not there that should be and the stuff that is there, but very subtly. It is a lovely piece of acting by her. And uh, really, Phyllis Diedrichson is definitely one of the great femmes fatale of classic American cinema. But anyway, that's about it for Double Indemnity. If you haven't seen it lately, see it again. If you haven't seen it ever, please see it. It's a classic. And um, a lot of the things that are in it are now cliches, but this is the reason 
they are cliches in the same sense that a lot of the stuff you see in pulp fiction is a cliche now because you've seen it in all the copies of pulp fiction um this is the kind of template on which a lot of those things were based so i'm going to take a break and when we get back we're going to the 1990s 1992 in fact for the joe esterhaz scripted paul verhoeven directed neo-noir basic instinct starring michael douglas Sharon Stone, Gene Triplehorn, and George Zunza. Oh, but before we do that, I've got two more things to say about Double Indemnity. The first one is there's a cameo by Raymond Chandler sitting outside Neff's office about 15, 16 minutes into the film. So that's one thing. The other thing, which is worse, is that even though Double Indemnity was nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars, in fact, it was nominated for two, four, seven Oscars, it lost every single one of them it lost best motion picture best director best actress best screenplay best black and white cinematography best music score and best sound recording now the thing it lost most of those awards to which sucks enormously is a piece of piss middle of the 20th century movie called going my way with bing crosby playing a catholic priest it lost best motion picture it lost Best Director to Leah McCary. It lost um, uh, Best Screenplay. And it's ridiculous. Uh, though the Best Actress, uh, even though Barbara Stanwyck was nominated for Best Actress for Double Indemnity, I can't really argue with the person she lost to, who was Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight. So that one seems to be a bit righteous. And the cinematography black and white, they lost to Joseph Lachelle, for Laura, another excellent film noir. So those are the two really um, that I can't argue with, but the rest of them, I definitely think that Double Indemnity was gypped. So on to that break now, and when I get back, Basic Instinct, starring Sharon Stone, Michael Douglas, George Zunza, and Gene Triplehorn. We got 31 stab wounds. What was it? Ice pick. I'd like to speak to Miss Catherine Tremell, please. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. I wanted to write a book about the murder of a retired rock and roll star. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. I picked him up, and I had sex with him. You didn't feel anything for him. You just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. You've got no physical evidence. She's lying. What's your new book about? A detective who falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Stay away from her! You are out of control, Kurt. You won't learn anything I don't want you to know. She knew I'd say she did it, and she knew that nobody would buy it. She is screwing with your head, Nick! She knows things about me that I only told you. How's it feel to kill someone? You tell me. Affairs, wasn't it? She manipulates people. Freeze! How much did she pay you? Come on, come on! 
where I live and breathe. Games are over, Nick. That trailer has really shit music in the background, but that is the original trailer. They tried to make it really edgy and really cool, but it didn't quite come out that way from what I saw of it. Nonetheless, uh, this is an important film in some ways, in that it's probably the big post-AIDS uh, film noir, in a sense. Now, And all of the movie is basically um, informed and textured by the AIDS epidemic that happened in the 1980s uh right at the start we we see dangerous sex where um the character Catherine Trammell played by Sharon Stone is having sex with Johnny Boz a retired rock star played by Bill Cable who at the time was dating Cassandra Peterson who played Elvira Mistress of the Dark it's not a spoiler because this happens right at the start of the film uh where even though you don't see her face, her hair's covering her face and everything, we know this is Catherine Trammell. She stabs Johnny Boz in the chest with an ice pick numerous times and in the neck um, while they're in the act. And um, it all get, you know, he dies, basically. Now, the interesting thing from that very first scene, and this is according to Cassandra Peterson, um, there were blood bags on, as a, on a prosthetic on Bill Cable's chest. But because Sharon Stone went to town on him with the ice pick, it went through the blood bags and the, and the things, and he actually got some wounds in his chest, which um, he had to the day he died. He died in 1998 in a motorcycle accident. But according to um, Cassandra Peterson, and she's got no reason to lie, apparently um, there were some physical injuries involved in the filming of that scene. So the murder's committed, and um, a couple of cops are sent to investigate it. Detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas, who's a troubled cop. He's an ex-drug um, addict. He was undercover and accidentally shot some tourists. He's got uh, lots of kind of mental health problems and abuse issues. And um, his partner, Gus, played by George Zunza, is a really interesting character. He's a very textured character. I like Gus a lot. And... Um, yeah, there, there's a nice rapport between Michael Douglas and George Zunzer in that, and between the two characters, Nick and Gus, um, as they're playing the cops. Their bosses are Lieutenant Walker, played by Dennis Arndt, uh, and his psychologist, yeah, Dr. Beth Garner, is played by Gene Triplehorn. Now, Nick is having an affair, in the past at least, and, and which continues as the movie progresses with um, Beth Garner, his psychologist, and there are some um, torrid and uh, interesting sex scenes between Gene Triplehorn and Michael Douglas in this film. Now, the creation of the movie was problematic at best. Joe Estahar's got three million bucks for the script, which is an outrageous amount of money at the time for um, a feature film script. Paul Verhoeven directed it, of course, who he previously had an enormous hit with Total Recall, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and also Sharon Stone, of course. And the um, DP in the film, the director of photography, was Jan de Bont. So, pretty good. It's a great-looking film. I think that the very Bernard Herrmann-type score by Jerry Goldsmith is very heavy-handed in the film. I found it a little intrusive at times. Uh, there, there are scenes where it works really well, particularly when um, they're travelling around the California coast above San Francisco 
and and a couple of other scenes like that but it, it does seem at least to me a little intrusive the script went through a whole bunch of iterations some of which are really really interesting as well uh, michael douglas put the kibosh on two things when he came on board to play nick curran he didn't want to go full frontal in the film and he didn't want to let the character be bisexual, which is a kind of Hollywood male star kind of bullshit thing. These days, with a particular you know, act, a bunch of actors, probably wouldn't be an issue. But it was very much an issue in 1992 for Michael Douglas. At one stage during the writing of the script, and this was really kind of interesting, um, the character of Nick Curran was going to be a female lesbian detective. And they were looking to get Kathleen Turner at the time to play the role. Um, a version of um, Basic Instinct with Kathleen Turner and Sharon Stone in it would have been really interesting. But they they looked at getting uh, a whole bunch of different people to play the Michael Douglas role. Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Ray Liotta, Patrick Swayze all auditioned for it. There were a whole bunch of um, female actors that they were trying to get to play the Catherine Trammell character, which... Uh, it's a difficult role because it does require a lot of nudity and a lot of kind of sexual scenes in the film. And for some actors, that's an issue. But Sharon Stone, who just come off doing Total Recall with Schwarzenegger, this was a breakthrough role for her. However, her career has gone since then. This is the kind of go-to role that really made her a big-name star for a number of years subsequent to it. But I'm taking a look at the list of the people who were considered for the role. Alison Doody, Rosanna Arquette, Courtney Love, Melanie Griffith, Jennifer Grey, Ali Sheedy, Bridget Fonda, Joan Allen, Jodie Foster, Helen Hunt, Jamie Lee Curtis, Valeria Golino, Patricia Clarkson, Bette Midler, Heather Graham, Gina Davis, Lita Fiorentino, Madeleine Stowe, Elizabeth Shue, Kelly Preston, Laura Dern, Teresa Russell, Demi Moore, Linda Hamilton, Daryl Hannah, Uma Thurman, Marilu Henna, Nancy Allen, Kim Basinger, Angelica Houston, Nicole Kidman, Diane Lane, Jennifer Jason Lee, Heather Locklear, Courtney Cox, Andy McDowell, Madonna, Virginia Madsen, Leah Thompson, Rebecca DeMorne, Kim Cattrall, Gina Gershon, Jennifer Connolly, Robin Wright, Helena Bonham Carter, Marissa Tomei, Ellen Barkin, Sarah Jessica Parker, Annette O'Toole, Greta Skarki, Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, Annette Benning, Mimi Rogers, Isabella Rossellini, Meg Ryan, Sybil Shepherd, and Melissa Gilbert. Wow. Um, any one of those would be kind of interesting in a, in a fucked up way. There are some people there whose name I wasn't expecting to see on that list. Nonetheless, um, fair enough, they were, they were being considered for the role. Um, yeah, I can see some of them doing it. I can see others. Um, I couldn't really see Bette Midler in the role to be really honest with you don't think it's quite her kind of thing i've just found some other actors who were considered for the nick curran role harrison ford kevin costner mill gibson de niro sean penn john hurd not john hurd the late john hurd valet um tom hanks charlie sheen michael j fox sylvester stallone jack nicholson bruce willis al pacino christopher lloyd martin sheen nick cage Dennis Quaid, Jeff Bridges, John Travolta, Richard Dean Anderson, Don Johnson, and Chuck Norris, of all people. Um, Wesley Snipes was offered the role but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. Denzel Washington was offered the role but turned it down as well. Um, yeah, kind of interesting. 
they really had problems casting this, and for fairly good reasons as well. There's a lot of aspects to both characters that really um, actors have to be confident in themselves and be willing to do things that they maybe hadn't done before in order to fulfill the role. Uh, there's a number of, of really kind of interesting aspects to this film. Very much of its time. And as I said, um, a lot of it is informed and kind of permeated with the sex is dangerous aspect to the AIDS um, epidemic of the 1980s and 1990s. Right at the start when the cops are investigating the murder scene for Johnny Boz, um, they one of the things mentioned is the fact that there's semen all over the place. So it's fairly clear implication from that that they weren't practicing safe sex. So that, to a 1990s audience, set off one of the alarms. There are a whole bunch of different aspects. Nobody used protection in any of the sex scenes in this film. So every sex scene you see, whether it be between Nick Curran and um, the psychiatrist played by Gene Triplehorn, or between Sharon Stone and, and his character, Catherine Trammell, and Nick Curran. There's no condoms used. There's no dental dams used. There is a scene which is kind of um, interesting because you didn't see this very often in a 1990s uh, movie of a mainstream type, a big budget uh, studio film. And this, uh, that's a scene where Nick goes down on Catherine. Uh, Cunnilingus wasn't something you saw a lot of in those days, but it kind of... Um, it was one of those things when I, I've forgotten about it. And then when I rewatched the movie today, I went, yes, that's right. If people are getting blowjobs in movies, then people should be muff-dived as well. And even that, of course, is a dangerous thing. In And you've got to remember, this film is set in San Francisco, and San Francisco, unfortunately, was one of the epicenters of the AIDS epidemic as well. So there are a lot of different things there that really triggered um, certain feelings of unease in an early 1990s audience. Now, there were protests when the movie was being made as well because some details of the script were leaked out and the fact that the Catherine Trammell character was bisexual was leaked out and a number of gay and lesbian groups protested um, on filming locations because they didn't want um, that kind of negative stereotype of people with diverse sexualities being perpetuated in this film. It's, um, people see things a little bit differently now. There can be positive gay role models, but there can also be negative ones. Gay people uh, aren't necessarily all angels. They're not necessarily the perverse demons that we saw in a lot of earlier films either. Um, yeah, but at the time, uh, these groups wanted to make sure that um, this film wasn't made because they believed at the time that it perpetuated negative stereotypes of bisexual and lesbian people. And fair enough, they, they had that belief at the time. Uh, there were riot cops around location shoots during the making of this film, which, um, of course, generated much more publicity to it. Even though the movie was kind of panned a bit by the critics at the time, it went on to make over $300 million. It was one of the most popular movies of the year. And um, it's got a lot going for it. There's there's even a cameo by an Oscar winner, Dorothy Malone, who won an Oscar back in the 50s for Written on the Wind, is there as a friend of um, Catherine Trammell's, a character called, he said, finding it in the listing here, Hazel Dobkins. 
And Dorothy Malone says, last acting role, uh, she's still alive. She's in the 90s now. But she's still alive, and she won an Academy Award for um, playing a nymphomaniac in Douglas Sirk's Written on the Wind in 1956. So there was that they brought into the film as well. Not to mention the fact that Dorothy Malone also had a small role as the bookshop woman in The Big Sleep, the Humphrey Bogart movie as well. So there is one co-star of Humphrey Bogart still alive to this day. And that is Dorothy Malone, a really beautiful woman in her day and a fine actress as well. She always um, essayed a certain intelligence in her roles, which I always kind of appreciated. Smart women in classic films is, is one of my big things, as you may well know. But having her in there, even though it is just basically a small cameo, is kind of interesting. And uh, it's not a bad way to end a long and very well-regarded career. I remember at the time the film came out too, there was a lot of controversy about Michael Douglas playing against um, Sharon Stone. Michael Douglas was in his late thirties, uh, late forties, sorry, and he's got a nude scene in there. And there were a lot of jokes about his wrinkled old ass and that kind of stuff. But the thing to remember here is Sharon Stone, at the time, was in her mid thirties, so there was only about a ten, twelve year age difference between the actors in this one. People were subconsciously, at least, because she looked so good thinking Sharon Stone was much younger than she was, but uh, she'd been working in Hollywood for 12 years before she got this role, which was her breakout role. And so she was in her mid-30s. And while we're here, I really should um, acknowledge but dismiss Basic Instinct to the 2006 sequel, which is a piece of shit. But uh, that then brings us to the scene everybody remembers from Basic Instinct, which is the interview scene where um, Sharon Stone uncrosses and crosses her legs and gives us a brief flash um sharon stone has at various times said that she wasn't aware that it was happening and then asked verhoven to cut the scene verhoven denies this joe esther haas denies this um i'm willing to believe her because it's her body and you know fair enough it maybe shouldn't have been in there but it is the scene that people most remember and the other bit of that scene that people remember which is kind of weird is wayne knight's round sweaty face playing john corelli one of the people who's interviewing Catherine trammell as he sees that um there, there are a number of um actors who turn up who are kind of interesting in this one but um that interview scene is kind of one of the classic 1990s transgressive movie scenes um, now, the other actors who are in there are kind of interesting. Leilani Sorrell plays Roxy, who is a, a female lover of Catherine Tramiel's. It's a bit of a thankless role in the same way that uh, Beth Garner, the Jean Triplehorn role, is a bit of a thankless role. The dynamic's mostly around Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone, and so a lot of these secondary roles are kind of underwritten. There's an actor called uh, Chelsea Ross playing Captain Talcott. Chelsea Ross also played... Um, uh, Senator, U.S. Senator in The Last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis, which is a movie I like a lot. Uh, Stephen Tobolowski turns up playing a doctor in one role. Daniel Von Bargen plays a policeman in it as well because he was kind of stereotyped as cops. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's there's very kind of 1990s cast in a lot of ways, uh, which yeah, that's fair enough because it was made in the 1990s. But a lot of familiar faces turn up. I think that the um, the film's beautifully shot. The cinematography by um, Jan de Bont is great. And there's a, the scene where we first actually formally meet Catherine Tramiel when she's in her house on the um, Pacific coast north of um, San Francisco. 
on a terrace overlooking a rocky shore with waves crashing against it. And she's cool as a cucumber and, and very calm as the cops come to um, ask questions of her. Uh, it's a really nicely done scene because you've got Sharon Stone being very cool and forthright and direct and having a, a kind of almost reptilian gaze. And in the background, you've got this churning of the ocean against the rocks and things like that. So you can see the tension underneath reflected in the landscape. But it's a really nice scene. And I like the way they use that particularly to show that um, there's a capacity for violence in this woman without explicitly saying it, even though we all know it because of the previous scene we've seen. There's a, a beautiful kind of reflection of that in there. There were some rewrites done for the um, movie as well, for the script, at Michael Douglas's request. He wanted the character to be less wimpy, so they beefed up the role somewhat. He was the name star in the film, so he had the clout to do that. Uh, I'm not sure what they beefed up and which bits they cut and pasted there. But ultimately, it comes out, even though Michael Douglas did have the role enhanced and kind of steroid pumped a little bit, he still comes across as the classic film noir patsy as the very last scene of the film shows, uh, where he's not as smart as he thinks he is, and he's not as tough as he thinks he is, and he's outmatched by the woman involved. And this is one of the reasons why it puts it into the classic noir thing. You've got a murder, you've got um, a femme fatale, you've got cops investigating it, you've got seedy characters all over the place. And it would have been nice to see some more ancillary characters apart from Roxy and cops. I think that um, maybe the Dorothy Malone character of Hazel Dobkins could have been pumped up a little bit in this one, but the oxygen was sucked out of, of that kind of enhancement of secondary roles probably by michael douglas but you know he was a star at the time i think it was an unwise choice not to make the character bisexual it would have made it a little more interesting in some ways but um yeah it's it's a decision that was made so we've got to go with the film as it was but uh george zunz's character gus is kind of interesting he's an urban cowboy so he's a big um big porky actor who um, at one stage is drunk at a bar and, and Nick comes and visits Gus. And Gus is sitting at a bar in a cowboy bar where line dancing is going on and country songs are being sung with a 10-gallon hat on his head. And kind of it's a little bit of a scene that adds to the character. And uh, I really like Gus as a character. In a sense, he's the Jiminy Cricket to Michael Douglas's Nick Curran. He's the conscience and the voice of wisdom. And um, he's a good friend to him as well, which is kind of interesting. And, and there's a really nice little line as they're staggering out of the bar where Gus says, I could get laid any time I like. I could get laid by blue-haired women in the bar, but I don't like blue-haired women. <laughs> so basically, um, yeah, there's a kind of moment there of humour in this movie that, uh, to a large extent apart from that, takes itself quite seriously. I think there are bits of the movie that are a little bit long. There are some car chases and other bits of business that um, take the energy out of the last two-thirds, of, not the last two-thirds, the last quarter of the film, maybe. Um, we're waiting to see more of the interaction between Nick and Catherine Trammell, but there's a, a couple of subplots that are in there as well to kind of set up the ending, which need to be dealt with, but I don't, I don't think they're done particularly well. That that would be my main criticism of it, is, is those kind of um, the flagging energy in that last quarter of the film up to a certain point, which um, which kind of doesn't really work for me. But, uh, yeah, 
just to kind of summarise it all, it's very much of its time. It talks to issues of the time in that sex is dangerous, sex is deadly kind of approach. Um, I think that Michael Douglas's acting, leaving aside these star turns and things like that, is quite good. Sharon Stone is very, and this is a word that's overused and a cliche, is very brave playing Catherine Trammell. She really did commit to the role, and she gave us um, a femme fatale who is forthright about her sexuality, who is very, very intelligent, very calm, very knowing, and is three steps ahead of everybody else in the film. And I kind of like that. I like that um, honesty that she has. Up to a certain point, she's honest. And in fact, she hints at things quite blatantly. And the guys, because of their own preconceptions and because of their own kind of male stubbornness, don't pick up on what she's actually implying in a couple of different scenes, which is kind of cool. And uh, yeah, it, it is a kind of direct character. And one of the great femme fatales of cinema. There's no question of it. Her Catherine Trammell is um, um, a monster that makes you horny, in a sense. And um, her, everything she says to the Nick Curran character is a challenge to him, uh, while also being a come on. So Esther Haas's writing in that part is really interesting. Uh, Esther Haas said that <laughs> the character, to a certain extent, is based on a stripper he had a night with in Ohio or somewhere like that. He picked her up. They went back to his room, and she held a gun on him for a couple of hours. She was freaking out about things, and they talked for hours after hours, and she told him how she'd been manipulated by men in the past and how she wasn't taking shit from men anymore. And Esther Haas remembered that and rolled it into the creation of this film. So there's a kind of real-world um, inspiration for this movie, which is kind of interesting, and also shows the kind of place Joe Esterhaz hung around in. Um, Esterhaz has expressed one regret about the film, and that is his advocacy of smoking, because he got throat cancer from being a smoker. And before he got throat cancer, he put the Nick's struggle with giving up cigarettes into the film as a character trait. And he has since kind of recanted that and said that it was unwise to do it. The other thing he said was wrong in the film is... The whole plot of the film falls apart if you consider DNA evidence. Right from the start, they had, they had they used DNA evidence, which had been used by the cops in America since the 1980s, then the murderer would have been caught right at the start of the film and the movie wouldn't have had anywhere to go. But um, they forgot about it and it wasn't part of the, what they were doing. And so um, Esther Haas has kind of acknowledged that flaw in the plot. Uh, and Verhoeven has as well, which kind of, when you think about it, makes everything fall apart. But I, I do like the film. I think it's a very important film noir of its time, and it's, it was good revisiting it. I think the sex scenes are bold for their time, and in fact are bold for now, with um, an actor who had the kind of prominence of Michael Douglas at the time, um, going places in the sex scenes where a lot of other men wouldn't have gone. But anyway, I'm going to wipe not wipe it up but wrap it up there uh, I've got to get this thing all edited and stuff like that and do a whole bunch of preparation for going away on holiday anyway everybody enjoy good movies enjoy bad movies thank you to the two Kerrys who are our patron saints of the Patreon subscribers and the rest of the Patreon subscribers thank you if you want to be a Patreon subscriber and get mentioned in the podcast every single episode go to patreon.com slash paleocinema 
give me a buck a month and you're there. So anyway, um, thank you again. Uh, I'll be back next week and a bit with um, another Martian Driving podcast where I am looking at, he said, trying to remember, non-English language science fiction films. I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast, the second part of Femme Fatale February, where I've got two more movies with Femmes Fatale in them. So look after yourselves. Uh, stay cool. Enjoy good movies. Enjoy bad movies. If you like musicals, go to see La La Land. And I will be back very soon to talk at you again. Take care. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.